You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning, and there is... There's so much going on in the world. There's so much to distract us, to occupy our minds. So we thank you for good songs like the one that we just listened to, songs that help focus our attention on hearing from you. The song expressed our desire well. We ask that you would speak to us and that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 as we pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we began walking through Daniel 6, the chapter which contains the most well-known event in Daniel's life. Whether you were raised in a Christian home or not, you probably heard at some point about Daniel in the lion's den. I hope what you began to see last week, friends, is that this ancient story recorded by Daniel and inspired by the Holy Spirit speaks directly into our present world and into our daily lives. In fact, in God's providence, his kind providence, I I shared this with you last week, I can't think of a better book for us to be studying right now as a church. Let me take a few minutes to quickly recount the events of chapter 6, and then I'll review the first four points of application I offered last week. I won't expound on those. Uh, I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to go back and to listen to what we talked about last week. In Daniel 6, the Babylonian king is Darius. Daniel is probably in his 80s. And while Daniel is continuing to walk in humility and serve faithfully, we're introduced to a group of government leaders that absolutely despise Daniel. We find out in verse 13 that these men hated Daniel's ethnicity and his integrity. This is an irrational hatred born of profound bigotry and jealousy. As the story unfolds, King Darius is manipulated into making an irrevocable law that no one can pray to anyone or anything other than him. Daniel's response to this unjust law is to keep doing exactly what he's always done. He worships God through regular prayer, and he does so openly and unashamedly Uh, just as he was doing before the king's decree. With a sense of gleeful animosity, Daniel's opponents report his lawlessness to Darius, who immediately regrets his decision and tries to figure out some way to keep Daniel from certain death by means of a lion's den. Now look at the text with me and let me read a part of the story beginning in verse 16, just to remind you what's going on. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. 
And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Well, Darius responds to this by sentencing to death both the men who tricked him and their families. Finally, he makes a decree that all people's nations and languages must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Friends, this is an incredible story. As I mentioned to you last week, I believe this story has so much for us. Our own faith ought to be strengthened by what we encounter in Daniel 6. Our faith ought to be strengthened, though, not primarily by what we see in Daniel's life and example, but our faith should be strengthened by this display of God's love and power revealed to us in and through the events of Daniel's life. Quickly, here are the four faith-fueling applications I offered you last week. Number one, God raises up his servants for his own glory. God raises up his servants for his own glory. We see this in the life of Daniel so clearly. God sovereignly placed Daniel in a position of influence where Daniel would have a platform to magnify the majesty of God. Number two, Earthly power and earthly leaders are ultimately a mirage. Every story in Daniel shows us the profound difference between earthly rulers and God. We see over and over that God is infinitely superior to every earthly ruler. Number three, faithful Christianity will always face worldly opposition. Faithful Christianity will always face worldly opposition. Like Daniel, walking in joyful obedience to God and faithfully worshiping God, this will at some point and in some way bring suffering and persecution into your life. Number four, persecuted and or ostracized believers don't need to panic. This amazing story reminds us that in the midst of horrific injustice and unimaginable evil, living under the rule of utterly wicked men, it is possible to live a prayerful, obedient, worshipful, and content life. And this is possible because God is sovereign. God is sovereign and has power over every square inch of the entire universe. So let me now spend the remainder of our time offering you two more faith-fueling applications that I think we pull directly from this inspired text. Faith-fueling application number five. 
living a life of complete allegiance and unreserved obedience to God is always right. Living a life of complete allegiance and unreserved obedience to God is always right, even when it means disobeying earthly authorities. Even when it means disobeying earthly authorities. In Romans 13, scripture clarifies how believers should interact with those who have been given earthly authority. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. If you're familiar with that text, it goes on to explain God's good design for governing authorities, calling them his servants. Now, we all know that many men and women who've assumed positions of great power and influence have not followed God's good design. But even so, Scripture instructs followers of Jesus to submit to those in authority. The question then becomes... Is this an absolute command without any exception? Is this an absolute command without any exception? Well, let's allow the text of Scripture to be our guide. I want to look quickly at three scenes from Daniel. From Daniel chapter 1, chapter 3, and then chapter 6. And I want you to see examples of complete allegiance and unreserved obedience to God, even when it means disobeying earthly authorities. Remember what Daniel declared in his doxology in chapter 2. God removes kings and sets up kings. That sounds similar to Romans 13, doesn't it? that God sovereignly places certain people in positions of authority. What we have in Daniel is not a case of God making a mistake. And therefore, Daniel and his friends, as they identify, well, this was a huge mistake God made. So obviously, then we're not bound to live in subjection to these governing authorities. No, by all accounts, the young Hebrew men embraced God's sovereignty in setting up certain kings, and they were then incredibly good citizens. This is why they keep getting promoted. And yet, and yet, there is a line they will not cross. So let's look at these three examples. We've already studied them in some detail. First, go with me all the way back to chapter 1 and look at verse 1. I just want to remind you of what's happening. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, uh, good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. 
The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him, to, uh, to allow him not to defile himself. As the book of Daniel opens up, Jerusalem is sacked. Daniel and his friends are taken to Babylon. It's obvious right away what Nebuchadnezzar's plan is. Take the best and the brightest of the Hebrew young men and make them Babylonian. This would happen by giving them new names, a new education, and a new lifestyle. According to the text, Daniel and his three friends said yes to the new names and to the new education, but said no to the new lifestyle. A lifestyle marked by eating the king's meat and drinking the king's wine. Now, why did these young men draw the line here? Is it that the king's meat and drink would have forced them to violate certain dietary laws? No. Was there something inherently sinful involved in eating the king's meat and drinking his wine? No. Then what was the hang-up? Why did Daniel draw the line here, resolving that he would not defile himself in this way? I want you to hear Sinclair Ferguson's explanation of why Daniel and ultimately his three friends said no to the king's food and drink. And I want you to listen very carefully to this. Ferguson writes, perhaps what Daniel perceived correctly in this food allotment was an effort to seduce him into the lifestyle of a Babylonian through the enjoyment of pleasures he had never before known. High living very easily masters the senses and blunts the sharp-edged commitment of young Christians. The good life that Daniel was offered was intended by the king to wean him away from the hard life to which God had called him. It would encourage him to focus on himself and on a life of enjoyment. It would lead him to think of himself no longer as a servile Israelite, but as a distinguished aid to the king. Ferguson further points out that no mention, this is so interesting and important, no mention is made of Daniel being confronted with an apologetic for Babylonian theology or with intellectual arguments against Old Testament faith. The attack was far more subtle than that and therefore potentially far more lethal. Somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price and that good times... Comfort, self-esteem, and a position in society are usually a sufficient bid 
for a soul. Brothers and sisters, this is why this is why we are in such desperate need of divine wisdom. There are countless dangers all around us that look delicious. And yet, it's, it's when we start nibbling at the table of comfort and ease and safety and prestige that the defenses come down. Daniel knew this to be true. What we delight in be, begins to shape and mold us. What we delight in begins to shape and mold us. We become what we behold. Daniel also knew that often the road to compromise is cleverly disguised as a life of comfort. So here's what I want you to see. If Daniel and his friends would have failed to say no here in chapter 1, if they would have rationalized the decision and convinced themselves that it's just food and drink, this is not worth making a scene over. It's not worth sticking out over. Let's just go with it. If that's what would have transpired in chapter one, friends, then I'm not sure our next two examples would have happened the way they did. Because once you become dependent on someone, bowing in allegiance before them becomes a lot easier. But in contrast, once you've made the hard decision, and once you've been given divine wisdom and strength to take a stand, and you've experienced God's sustaining grace and his sufficient strength, once you've been reminded that God supplies your every need and he will never leave you or forsake you, well, then you're, you're ready for the next more serious challenge. You're ready because you've, you've understood in that moment what it is to be satisfied with God. Daniel and his friends said no to the king's command to eat. And in chapter 3, they said no to the king's command to bow. You remember the scene. King Nebuchadnezzar builds a massive golden image. When he has called all the people to the place where the image stood, he commanded everyone to bow in worship. Look at the text with me, Daniel chapter 3, look at verse 4. Just to remind you, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. As the music begins to play, everyone did as they were commanded, except Three young men, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow and worship before the golden image. King Nebuchadnezzar was furious at the disobedience of these three young men. He confronted them and reminded them that they would die if they refused to bow. And then you remember the bold response of these three young men, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, friends, this instance of disobedience, I think, seems more obvious to all of us. Well, of course, of course, you should never bow down and worship before an image of gold. But think about this in connection to our first example in chapter one. Here's why I said that had they failed the test in chapter one, I think this story in chapter three would be very different. In chapter one, the young men revealed their dependence on God in the face of a trial that involved eating and drinking. But now the trial doesn't involve their diet, but their death. Had they chosen the way of comfort and ease in chapter one, they likely would have done the same thing in chapter three. But if they could trust God with their diet, they could trust him with their death. While the trials are very different in chapters one and three, both, listen, both were about dependence on God and allegiance to God. Of course, we see the very same thing in chapter six, don't we? Darius is convinced to make a self-serving decree prohibiting anyone in his kingdom from praying to anyone or anything other than him. If they did, they would die. They would be thrown into a den of lions. When the decree is made public, what does the text say? Daniel 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel knew about the decree. He knew about the punishment. He had time to think about what he would do in response. He could have easily changed his routine for 30 days and prayed in private. The decree didn't forbid Daniel from worshiping God. It just put a 30-day ban on prayer. Only 30 days of his whole life. It would have been easy for Daniel to accommodate this ridiculous ban by King Darius, right? Friends, I think the text is written the way it is to indicate that Daniel's decision was immediate. He didn't have to deliberate. He'd, he'd been down this road before. Isn't it interesting that verse 10 says Daniel gave thanks before God? Think about that. We might wonder, uh, he knew about the decree. He knew about the punishment for disobedience. What exactly is he giving thanks for? Well, by this point in his life, Daniel has watched God sovereignly orchestrate incredible circumstances. He's received God's wisdom. He's enjoyed God's care. 
He's, he's experienced God's presence. He has daily engaged in sweet communion with God through prayer. I imagine, brothers and sisters, that in spite of the threat of death, Daniel had no difficulty coming up with reasons to offer thanks to God. Now, consider how. Consider how this act of disobedience in chapter 6 connects to our other examples. In all three trials, the young men revealed their dependence on God and their allegiance to God. To eat and drink or bow before the golden image or refrain from praying to God, all of these would have revealed in some way and on some level that God was not enough, that they couldn't depend on him, that God didn't deserve their allegiance. In each scenario, these young men declared through their words and actions the majesty and glory and worth of God. By their words and by their actions, they declared that God alone is worthy of our complete allegiance and unreserved obedience. You see, brothers and sisters, our worship of God our worship of God displays the worth of God. That's what worship means. And in the book of Daniel, the young men at the center of the story repeatedly declared that God is better. God is better than food and fame or safety and security. In fact, the actions of these young men proclaim the truth of Psalm 63. Listen to the word of God. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you, listen, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So friends, when is it okay? When is it permissible to disobey earthly authorities? Well, I think that's actually the wrong question to ask. I, I don't think it does any of us any good to sit around looking for opportunities to disobey earthly authorities. I don't think this is what Daniel and his friends were doing. I don't think they had made a commitment to disobey any and every Babylonian king if they needed to. No, I, I think their commitment was to worship God every day and in every way. 
I think they were committed to glorify God in even the most mundane activities of life, like eating and drinking. I think they were committed every day to walking in humble dependence on God. I think they believed that God alone was worthy of their complete allegiance and unreserved obedience. So here's what happened. When Daniel and his friends could not honor the demands of earthly rulers while faithfully walking in obedience to God, well, they simply kept obeying and worshiping God. You see, the act of disobedience wasn't some sort of cocky gesture of defiance. It was simply the byproduct of faithful obedience to God and right worship of God. Brothers and sisters, listen, as you delight in God, as you enjoy God, as you commune with God, there will be times when your obedience to him will mean that you've disobeyed some earthly authority. But the decision won't be whether you should obey God or man. It will be a foregone conclusion. You always obey God. No matter what. Because he alone is worthy of your complete allegiance and unreserved obedience. Don't forget that obedience is an act of worship. Now let me conclude with one last faith-fueling application, and this is much shorter than the last one. Faith-fueling application number six. Daniel, Daniel gloriously points us to Jesus. Daniel gloriously points us to Jesus. I want you to listen to a handful of verses from chapter six one last time as we draw to a close and prepare for the Lord's table. So look at the text with me. First look at verse four. Daniel 6, verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Skip down to verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Now down to verse 19. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before you. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. 
You see, those verses are just a sampling of how this Old Testament story is crafted in such a way that we're supposed to see Daniel as a type of Christ. Think about it. The enemies of Daniel find no fault in him, so they conspire against him and manipulate the law to bring about his death. Daniel was innocent of any wrongdoing, but he willingly gave himself over to the unjust judgment of evil men who desired to take his life. Sentenced to death, Daniel was put in a tomb that was sealed with a great stone. This was certainly the end for Daniel. And just about the time Daniel's enemies believed that they had won, they received the news that when the stone was rolled away, Daniel emerged unscathed and fully alive. Friends, does that sound familiar? Daniel obeyed God rather than man. He walked in wisdom and integrity. He trusted God with his life, and God proved that he had power over death. This story provides us with hope. God can be trusted. God has the power to rescue and to save. God can deliver his servants from certain death and give them life. Now, in, in some way, this story was only good news for Daniel. But the future story that this story points to is good news for all people. Isn't that what the angels announced in Luke 2? Instead of God rescuing his servant from the jaws of lions, God rescued his own son from the jaws of sin and death. God raised Jesus from the dead. When the stone was rolled away from Jesus' tomb, it was empty. He was alive. Oh, friends, this is good news for all people. This is good news for all people because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, any person on the face of the earth, no matter how broken or sinful or lost or confused, any person can turn to Christ in faith and experience rescue. Rescue from the power of sin and the hopelessness of a life searching for joy and satisfaction and things that will only leave you feeling empty and alone. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never believed in Jesus, you've never heard of God's love for you in Jesus, then I want you to listen carefully to the most famous verse in all the Bible. John 3.16 for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but they will be rescued to eternal life. In just a moment, we're going to hold a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice in our hands. And we will be reminded that Jesus died for sinners, as a substitute for sinners. 
to satisfy the just wrath of God against sin. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven and made new in Jesus. Our only hope in life and death is what? It's Christ alone. Let's pray.